Hey everyone, welcome to episode 22 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. First, we just want to thank our sponsors at the top of the show for today's episode. That's Lola Organic Feminine Products and Casper Mattresses. Before we begin, like always, we want to thank everyone for all of their amazing feedback. Whether it was on iTunes, Instagram, or Twitter, thank you guys for commenting on the episode. Uh, last, uh, our last episode, it definitely was, it was a strange one. It really was. But we really loved all your feedback and all of your different theories. They were great. Your feedback is really important to us, and we really appreciate it. And if you are um, looking for an update on our Rebecca Shackney murder case, we have an update that we're going to be putting up tomorrow on our Patreon page. So if you're a Patreon member, you can look for that to come out. And once again, we just want to keep thanking our Patreon members. Your support means so much to us, and we are so grateful for it. Okay, so let's get into episode 22. Everyone who has had a missing loved one has said the worst thing is not knowing. Not knowing where they are, how they are, or if they will ever come home. But what would it feel like to think your daughter is alive, but know you cannot hear from her or see her because she's being held against her will? That was the reality for a mother, Desiree Baldwin, from South Wales in 2002. Her 15-year-old daughter, Jenna, was missing and had been at that point for a few months when she received a text message from a number that she does not know claiming to be her daughter. Jenna tells her mother that she cannot call or see her. She was abducted and can only check in once in a while. Desiree is devastated and desperate for police to search harder for her teenage daughter. But little does she know that she's not talking to her daughter. She's communicating with her murderer. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Desiree Baldwin had her daughter Jenna when she was 21 years old on May 7, 1987. She had been married to Jenna's father for two years at that point. She states that her and her ex-husband were just still very young, and unfortunately, things didn't work out. The couple divorced when Jenna was 18 months old. Months after her divorce is finalized, Desiree meets Mike Baldwin, a factory worker from town. She was 22, and he was 21. Mike was a great father to young Jenna. The two often spent time together, and Jenna began calling him dad. When the couple chose to get married that year, Jenna even served as a bridesmaid in the wedding. As they were beginning their family, Mike thought it was right to adopt Jenna and legally change her name from Brookfield to Baldwin. Desiree and Mike got permission from Jenna's biological father and the adoption went through. The Baldwins live in Pontypool, which is a town in South Wales within the county of Gwent. By all accounts, it's a very small town where everyone knows everyone. Years later, when Jenna was 8 and 10, Mike and Desiree had two more children. By all accounts, Jenna was a great big sister. She loved taking her siblings swimming, out for walks, and to color with them. Really, she sounds like the perfect child. However, everything changes when Jenna turns 13 years old. She gets rebellious, and not just the normal teenage girl kind of rebellious. She would get into heated and angry arguments with her parents and refuse to go to school. On many occasions, the truancy officer from Jenna's school had to visit the Baldwin home to inform them that her amount of lates could consequate in them possibly facing prison time. 
In reflection, her mother said that this was a very difficult time for her. Jenna had always been such a good, mild-mannered girl. Desiree did not know this child growing up before her. Her friends, however, paint a very different story. They say that Jenna was, was a mature and sweet girl who was just going through a hard time with her parents. She felt, like all teenagers do, that her parents just didn't understand or give her enough freedom. Haven't we all been there, though? Yeah, I think we can kind of all relate to that. I mean, even if we were wrong, everyone's done this, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's true, especially girls seem to have a little bit... I remember my teenage years not being the best with my parents, even though they're so great. I was just a major B. Like, how can you be mean to Patty? I don't know. I'm really sorry, Mom, already. (laughs) (laughs) When I think... I do apologize to my mom all the time, randomly. I'll just be like... Sorry for being, like, 16. That really sucked. I'm really (laughs) sorry. (laughs) So Desiree recalls that things were always okay with Jenna in the summer because she didn't have to attend school. But as soon as she had to go back, the fighting would start up again. But this also makes me wonder if there was something going on at school. Like, with the people at school, or maybe she was fighting with someone, or maybe there was some type of educational issue. Maybe she was being bullied? Maybe, or maybe she has a learning disability. There's like a huge major aversion, it seems like, for her in school. And it seems like she took it out on her parents. Yeah, I mean, even though everyone does it, I mean, maybe she was having an issue at school and that was her outlet to get rid of it, I guess. You know what I mean? And for two years, Jenna had a lot of attendance issues with school. And on Wednesday, the 4th of September in 2002, Desiree returned home from work on her lunch break. When she drives up to the house, she sees Jenna banging on the front door. Apparently, Mike, who had just gotten home from work after working the night shift, either locked her out or wouldn't let her in. Mike had left the key in one of the interior locks in the door so that the women couldn't get back in the house. I'm not a locksmith. I don't know how that works, but that's kind of a dick move. That is (laughs) a dick move. Your wife can't even get in the house. So I was going to say, but... I mean, maybe he was just tired. And yeah, he wanted, he wanted to go to sleep. He wanted to go to sleep and, yeah. uh, you know, do not disturb. <laughs> uh, Mike does work two part-time jobs. So he does, he's a security guard, but he also works in a factory. So it seems like he does like an alternating like day shift, night shift kind of thing. So he does work a tremendous I amount. I could totally relate. And it does take a toll. <laughs> it does. So to de-escalate the situation, Desiree decided to drive Jenna back to her aunt's house. During the 15-minute drive, Desiree had a conversation with Jenna about school. Jenna seems to be more responsive to her mother. She agrees that she's not making the best decisions, and she promises that she will be attending school again. She'll go back that following Monday. Jenna seemed ready to fix things and to help herself. And after dropping her off, her mother returned to work. She didn't know it then, but this is the last time she's ever going to see Jenna alive. The following Sunday, Jenna did not go to school. Her aunt visited the Baldwin home to inform Desiree and Mike that she had not heard from Jenna since the morning of September 5th. She said she was going out and she never returned home. This was very strange because Jenna always had her cell phone on her and would usually answer the phone, no matter who called, but she wasn't picking up. However, it was not uncommon that Jenna would disappear for a few days on end, and usually... She would return as if nothing had happened. Desiree is going to reach out to Jenna's friends and to other family to see the last time anyone spoke to her or maybe if Jenna was staying with any of them. 
And at this point, it's already September 8th. So a few days have kind of passed on. I don't know about you, but if that was me and if I was gone for a few days, you know my mom, she would have been like, she would have joined a police search and like... She probably would have been through the police academy in two days and tried to start searching for you Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But I think that like every parent should have some sort of like... Uh, concern i mean this is literally like a playbook like a page out of the playbook of uh dr phil you know it's like the kids don't go to school they they go missing and then they blame it on the parents but like it's kind of weird it is strange that i think she had been at that point missing for three days and no action had been taken even if she is a typical runaway scenario or she's a girl who has run away in the past Three days is kind of long to not do anything or even to look, to call friends. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, twenty within 24 hours, if you don't hear anything, that's that's odd. It seems like the family situation at home is, I wouldn't say not the best. It seems like both parents are working a lot and they have two younger kids to take care of. And the fact that Jenna's causing problems for them, they kind of don't mind if she stays at the aunt's or if she goes missing for a few days or that's the kind of vibe that I got only because Jenna does cause so much tension within the house. Right. Which I understand. And I'm sure she causes conflict between, you know, husband and wife too. You know I mean? Yeah. That's, it's not his child. That does get complicated. You know what I mean? It does get a little complicated there. So I guess it's sort of normal to be put on the back burner, but three days. And 15 is very young. Yeah, I know. Just three days No matter how mature this girl acts or seems to be 15 is really young right but relief finally came on monday september 9th when jenna calls mike and tells him that she just wanted to get away but no one should worry when she comes back she'll start going to school and everything is going to be all right desiree is still worried and very concerned but relieved her daughter's okay and to make things even better jenna returns to the house the following day Mike had just gotten home from his work at the factory on the night shift, and Desiree was at work. He said that Jenna had arrived at the house with a mysterious new friend, a girl who had dyed red hair. It appeared to him that the girls were on drugs because they were acting strangely and being a bit loud. He said that while they were at the house, Jenna had taken a shower, gotten more clothes, and both girls had left the house giggling. Now, this brought up a lot of red flags for Desiree. First, who's the new friend with dyed red hair? They knew all of Jenna's friends, and Mike said he had never seen her before. Also, Jenna was rebellious, but she wasn't known to do drugs. And if this was true, was Jenna getting pulled into the world of drugs? Now, that's something that was mentioned by Desiree, that Jenna didn't do drugs, but we have a lot of accounts that Jenna did do a lot of drugs, um, especially with her older boyfriend who actually just prior to this her going missing they broke up so jenna does have a history of doing drugs i think that's a little bit of um either the mother not knowing that that's going on in her daughter's life or kind of like an ignorance kind of thing or like what i don't know won't hurt me it's possible i i would probably i would lean towards that i think that uh i mean we know that drugs are prevalent everywhere so, I mean, the possibility well, of... Well, especially a 15-year-old girl who's not going to school. So, what's going to occupy your time during the day? I mean, the people that you're hanging out with that are around your age that aren't going to school as well, really not going to be the best crowd. So... Absolutely not. I don't That's think what... they're hanging out 
studying. And I don't even think they're doing any hardcore shit. I think they no, might be smoking they, some marijuana, but... It, amphetamines is what they did. Uh, that was their drug of choice. Gotcha. And lastly, Desiree was upset with Mike. Why didn't he make her stay or ask more questions? Who was this girl? Where'd she gotten the drugs from? Where is she going? Where'd she been? She was just, at this point, worried and very frustrated, which is completely understandable. Okay, so let's take a break to talk about our first sponsor. Our first sponsor today is Lola. Lola provides a modern approach to feminine care. If you think about it, we care about the ingredients in the food that we eat, the beauty products we use, so why shouldn't the same be true about feminine care products? The FDA doesn't require brands to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients in their feminine care products, so most of them just don't. Major brands use a mix of synthetic ingredients in their products, including rayon and polyester. Their feminine care products may also be treated with harsh chemicals and cleansing agents, fragrance, and dyes. Lola products are 100% organic cotton. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They started their company with a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. Lola products are 100% natural and 100% easy to feel good about. Unlike major brands, Lola offers complete transparency about the ingredients found in their tampons, pads, and liners. No BS, no mystery fibers, no more doubts about what's going in your body. Lola products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics, or dyes. Plus, Lola products come in simple, customizable, simple, customizable subscriptions, so you'll never need to make another frantic trip to the drugstore. It's oftentimes very embarrassing. Lola will deliver exactly what you need and exactly when you need it. I really loved getting my Lola delivery. It conveniently showed up at my door in an adorable and discreet box. I was able to customize my box so that I had just what I needed for the whole month without having to buy three different sets of products. I got to choose what and how many products I wanted and the frequency in which they arrive. Lola makes it really easy to cancel or skip an order at any time as well. What I love the most, though, is that I don't have to worry what I'm putting in my body. Lola is offering True Crime Couple listeners an amazing deal. You can get 40% off your first order by visiting mylola.com and entering promo code TCC when you subscribe. Again, that's mylola.com, M-Y-L-O-L-A.com, promo code TCC for 40% off your first order. Okay, so now let's get back to the show. Desiree gets further annoyed with Mike when a truancy officer from Jenna's school is going to pay a visit. She is asking where Jenna is, as is proper protocol when a student misses a certain amount of days from school, whether those are excused or unexcused absences. And... To have a truancy officer visit your home, you have to have an excessive amount of absences. So this means that at this point, on September, in the beginning of September, meaning that school had probably had been going on for maybe a month, Jenna had already missed over 18 days of school. What? Yeah. That's insane. So she maybe went to school five, six days. Wow. That's, it takes a lot for a truancy officer to come visit in September. Mike explains that Jenna did return home for a little bit, 
But his explanation is a little different than what he had explained the first time to Desiree. This time, the visit seemed a little bit more sinister. Mike says that Jenna and her friends' eyes were rolling in the back of their heads. And this was a far cry from the loud giggling he explained to Desiree. Desiree was upset, and Mike said that he did not want to upset her more because she was already so worried about where Jenna had been. So at this point, Desiree's going to contact police because something didn't seem right here. Later that night, Mike calls the police and explains and reports the incident of that day to them in detail. So Jenna is now formally reported as missing. Well, good. I mean, at least the authorities know that she's missing and they can start looking for her, whether if she's in trouble or just fine, just hanging out. At least they know they could start looking for her, you know what I mean? Yeah, and so at this point, the last time Jenna has been seen alive is September 5th, and she's formally reported missing, like the search begins September 12th. It's a long time. That's a long time. Yeah, and we know, of course, watching our favorite investigation discovery shows, the first 48 hours is is so pivotal in a child being missing, and now a week has gone by. It's a long time. And no one's even started looking. Your success rate to finding people after the 48 hours is insane. But Jenna had been seen on the 10th, technically. So now Jenna's seen on the 10th, but where was she in that time before? And now it's the 12th, so here's our 48 hours. So the cops have to get to work. Detective Chief Investigator Jeff Ronane was assigned to the case. He explains that mother and stepfather were genuinely concerned about where Jenna was. So he didn't immediately suspect anything with the parents because he felt like, like, yeah, it was a little bit of a weird relationship that they had because they were feuding because she was a teenager, but they were concerned about her. He knew that they had difficulties raising her and were very hard on themselves about her being missing. And I think they were kind of embarrassed because... They know they saw Jenna on the 10th, but they really have no idea about where she was from the 5th till when they saw her or even where she was right then. It's it's kind of embarrassing as a parent. Especially when you're being asked by the cops. Yeah. Hey, where's your kid? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) For the past week. DCI Ronane explains that the difficulty... The difficulties that the couple explained was was nothing completely out of the ordinary for a rebellious teenager. So yeah, Jenna wasn't going to school, but it just seems like normal circumstances for a teenage girl who who may be slightly more rebellious than the normal rebellious teenager, with my air quotes, but it wasn't anything that they hadn't seen before. The next day, Mike and Desiree were brought in to be formally interviewed separately. When discussing Jenna's change in behavior, once she turned 13, Mike said the following. I got on really well with Jenna until she started growing up and growing up and getting bigger and bigger. And that's when they start getting cheeky then. I love when people use the word cheeky. Well, it is. Well, don't forget it's whales. No, I know, but I, I just love, I love cheeky. their like slang, their terms. They're it just is. so cool. There's a lot of, a lot of like slang this whole time. And I'm like, this is like really I love it. awesome. I love it. But, like, if I go outside and talk like that, people will think I'm crazy. Yeah, they can't say... You can't say someone's being cheeky. No, but I like that. It's also weird when people randomly talk in British accents. I broke up with someone once for that. What? Yeah, I told you this story. I forget. He was... (laughs) (laughs) He just would... 
Like, we would uh, be out to eat, and then the waiter would come, and then he'd, like, order in a British accent, and I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? He's All right, so that's weird. weird. It was so weird. So, yes, I like British accents, but when the person's British and not just being weird. You know, that's like that old commercial. It's like, hello, governor. You know, like, you wouldn't be talking in, like, a, even though that's an Australian accent. Yeah. Just saying, weird. People do that all so the time. So you just, now you just. What? Hello, governor. You just profiled them. You just, that was so wrong. You can't, Australian and Wales, two completely different completely places. Completely two different places. I love Australian accents, though. I know that is your favorite. They're cool. But, John, this is in Australia, so. I know. I'm sorry. Next time we'll do an Australian accent Please, case. me out back. Okay. <laughs> you can't say things like that because people get offended. I love them, though. But it doesn't matter if you love them. You can't say something offensive and be like, I love them any. I love well, them. I apologize. I hope you guys still love me, though. All right. Mike added that as the years went on, the arguments got worse and that Jenna was using horrific language in front of her younger siblings. And he was concerned that she would make the wrong impression on them. And this is really true. An older sibling does make an impression on their younger siblings. So I understand Mike feeling like if Jenna's coming home, swearing at us, not going to school, being rude, and that is going... My two younger children are going to think that that is okay behavior. And I understand that they don't want to raise their two younger kids to believe that this is acceptable. Right, because it definitely rubs off. 100%. He was then asked about the girl with the red hair and their behavior in the house that day. DCI Ronane, first of all, I love saying it. DCI Ronane. Doesn't that sound Sounds so really much cooler? Cool. See what I'm saying? I know. That's even cool. Like, they got all the cool shit. I, they really do. The only thing they're lacking is sunshine. Because it doesn't really have, like, you don't get sun too, too much. much. sun. But other than that, they're awesome. I know. Like, everything about them are so cool. Like, we suck. I know. Knockoff versions? Well, I guess. Well, at the end, at the end of this episode, we might like the way things are done here a little bit better. Probably. We'll, we'll get there. So, DCI Ronane states that it is weird that Mike would not question Jenna about where she was or who this new friend was especially the fact that she was in their home unattended for long periods of time. So, like, Jenna went to go take a shower. So now this random girl is just in their house with them. Y- your friends ask you, like, like, who are you? Like, do you know what I mean? Right, right. I remember my parents would get so offended if someone didn't introduce themselves. Introduce themselves. Yeah, of course. Same yeah. Oh, my dad was a stickler for that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. But what makes it different here is that Jenna had been missing for four days. So it's different than like, oh, you're at school, you bring a friend home. Oh, your friend didn't introduce themselves to me. It's more like, oh, you've been missing for four days. Aren't you going to like kind of explain what's been going down? But according to Mike, that's not what happened. And I guess he explains it away of him being tired from working the night shift. So police were now at crossroads. They had limited information and no leads. There were four main lines of inquiry that they could take. And they had to decide where they were going to use their resources. So the first line of inquiry could be that Jenna ran away. That she just wasn't liking the way things were going and she decided to leave. Which I think is strange because she was already staying at the aunt's house. And she had a... Although she was banging on the door to get in when Jenna's mother found her, they had a good conversation in the car in which Jenna 
said that she wanted to start going back to school on Monday and she apologized to her mother. So I, I just don't know what would have happened to make her run away. You think it was Michael? Maybe, but it's just she didn't have an interaction with Michael. No, I know what you mean, but like maybe like even in the past, like things can trigger, you know, things that might, they might have fought about in the past could have. No, triggered, I know, like, but we're trying to say like yeah. from that day. Yeah. Like weird. what would have happened? She already wasn't living at home. Right, she right, was right, right. No, aunt. yeah, I see what you're saying. Right, and it seemed like everything was squashed when she talked to her mother. Right. Yes, yeah, so that's weird. So that's why the police were, they do know that Jenna is someone who has run away in the past. However, the circumstances have always been different. Like there was a big blow up fight. Jenna went to go live with her boyfriend for a few days. Like there was no blow up that took place. The second line of inquiry is that she could have possibly been abducted. She is living a risky lifestyle, high risk behavior, not going to school, being involved in drugs, dating older men. So this is a high possibility that she could have maybe been abducted. And then that leads to this third line of inquiry where she could have been killed. So she could have been killed over something as silly as a bad drug deal or she was abducted and murdered or a fight between friends, possible ex-boyfriend. Possible ex-boyfriend, yeah. Or it could have just been an accident, hit and run, the the driver decided to take off or do something with the body. They really had no idea what to do. But at this point, they determined that although there was no blow-up situation, that the most likely of circumstances is that Jenna just ran away. It's kind of, it has to do with the concept of like Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation is, is usually the is correct the right one. one. Yeah. Police knew the fastest way to learn something about a teenage girl is to ask her friends. So that's exactly what they did. They said the last time they saw Jenna was around lunchtime on the 5th of September. She was talking about what she usually talked about, how unhappy she was with her home situation, and how she wanted to get out of their small town. Her friends told police that she loved London, and that's where she wanted to end up. Investigators also asked her friends what were some of her favorite articles of clothing and makeup, and were these things that she would never leave without. Now, that's interesting tactic because then they go back to her house to see if those items were in her room. And sure enough, every article of clothing and piece of makeup that her friends described were in her closet. So this made them believe that Jenna had not run away. So the most obvious answer in this case isn't true. She did not tell her friends that she even had a plan And they thought that was kind of suspicious as well, because usually if a girl's running away and she sees her friends the day before or close to the time before she's leaving, she's going to explain to them, hey, guys, this is it. I'm like finally leaving for London. It'd be something like that, you know? Yeah, or like I can't take anymore. I'm going to go, you know, like something. Exactly. It was something would have been talked about between amongst friends. Yeah, because if you're a 15 year old girl who's running away to London first, they're all chatty. First, you're really cool. Like. That's the cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're going to tell every single one of your friends, I'm cooler than you. I'm finally getting out of this town. Right? Yeah. So, but that's not what happened. So obviously that's not what Jenna did. She didn't, she wasn't running away with this mysterious red-haired girl. You know what I used to, really quick, side note. You know what I used to tell people at school and it used to make me really cool? I used what? to tell them that my dad was like a black belt in karate and could kick anybody's ass. So like the talk of like elementary school was like, oh, my dad can kick your dad's ass. 
I'm I like, think that's that the like talk about everyone's elementary school. I'm just saying. I don't know. It but made, you it made, made up me cool, your though. dad's credentials. Yes. It made me really cool, though. And I also told people my dad had, like, a robot leg, which was partially true. Because my dad has, like, all that steel plate and rods in his leg from his accident. Yeah. But So your dad is, like, a robot ninja? He's pretty much like a, like a Terminator ninja, yeah. And people thought he was, like, the coolest thing. So when people used to see him, they used to flip out. They either used to run away or they used to, like, be like, hey... Wow. You know, like they used to like they used to like be like, Hi, sir. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I got mad respect. <laughs> that is <laughs> But anyway. That's an interesting fact about you. Yeah, yeah. You in the playground. Yep. So Desiree is going to begin her missing persons campaign for her daughter immediately. This is always a heartbreaking time for parents, as we've seen in most cases. It's filled with heartbreaking stories of getting a lead, driving to a location, only to find out it was a false report or that Jenna wasn't there. Once, Desiree received a phone call, and all she heard on the other end was heavy breathing. She called the number back, and she was told that it was a phone box. So, like, a payphone. A phone box? Yeah, that's what they call it, a phone box. Oh, that's so funny. It's a phone in a box. See, that's so it funny. Sense. Yeah, like, it's so literal. Yeah. But I like it. But let me ask you... Like, but ours, like, payphone, like, you gotta pay to use the phone. We don't even... No one even uses a payphone anymore. Yeah, but this is back in 2002. We still had payphones. There's yeah, payphones all over yeah, the but place. Even then, I don't the think... movie payphone. I know, but... Okay. Come on, John. <laughs> okay. All right. She asked where it was, and she drove down there. She searched the area for hours, but there was no sign of Jenna. And that is when she decided to have missing signs made. And she put them up everywhere, all over town. Can you do me a favor? Yeah. Can you, like, go and, like... No. No, no. Hear, hear me out. Hear me out. Uh, Just do this survey for me. When a, you go a to, survey? Yeah, not not like a like an actual like one. Like a Google but, survey? No, no, no. No. Okay. Like, when you... So, when you go to class... Okay. Be, ask your students. Be like, do you guys know what a phone box is? And let's well, see what happens. Of course, they're not going to know. I would say pay phone. Okay. Ask them if they've ever seen a payphone. <laughs> I guarantee you half of them don't no, even know. No, they took a lot of them down. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. I guarantee I know, you. I know. It's crazy. That they don't even know what a payphone even looks like. My students don't even know what South Park is, John. It's a sad world. How do they not know Mr. Hanky? They don't. Or Towley? I know. All right. Well, I, I really can't tell them what that is. I know. That would be That would be good. bad. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so the police asked the Baldwins to participate in a press appeal. And just another side as we're talking about, like, People calling things weird. So Desiree's name is Desiree, right? right? I mean, a lot of times they call her Des. It's kind of how everyone refers to her when talking about her and in interviews and stuff. But DCI Ronane, he keeps calling her Desiree. Maybe he thinks it's super exotic. No, I think that that's how some people pronounce it in maybe, Wales maybe or we're in just, Maybe we're just fucking it up. Desiree. And, I, and he... <laughs> kept giving an interview and he was talking about it and i'm like who the hell is this guy talking about then i'm like oh my god he's saying desiree whatever (laughs) or maybe we're just super maybe we're not doing it jersey and it's not good i guess we need to be more cultured we're trying yeah we're trying really hard (laughs) so the police asked the baldwins to participate in a press appeal and this is always a complicated decision for investigators to make on one hand the message gets out to the largest amount of people the more eyes that are looking for Jenna are the better. And that's kind of like the John Walsh theory where as you want to try and keep your child's missing persons case in the press as long as possible because the second people stop talking about it, everyone forgets. 
Which has, you know, it, it holds sense. weight. Yeah, absolutely. But the other side of it is once you do a press appeal, this is when all the crazies come out. So psychics call in about visions or dreams that they had, and people start calling in a lot of false claims. And in this case, the false claims were very labor-intensive because the one thing about the United Kingdom is that they have CCTVs set up everywhere. So if someone says they spotted Jenna at this on this street at this time, they now are going to watch hours of the footage from that street. But all these false claims, this all adds up, and now the police are looking at hundreds of hours of CCTV surveillance video. And it's very labor-intensive for the police force of Gwent, the county. You know, I didn't know about that, actually. But that's that's real. They really do have CCTV I, everywhere. I try not to make things up for the podcast. No, no, no. But I, I, I <laughs> truly did not know that until this because um, I just didn't know that that's like they, you know, their rules, their laws are different. Like, Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's not like You're under being, surveillance yeah. all the time. It's not infringing on your personal space. Yeah, but or we... I think it's just a a higher concern for public safety because think about all of the cases that are sometimes covered by CCTV and all the great things that come out of it, like the Skylar Niece case. Yeah. That's how they saw who came and picked her up. CCTV is so big, like it, like they ha- it's all over now, that they even make like uh, ID discovery shows on it now where it's oh, just based on CCTV. I watch it all the time. I know. It's insane. And that's amazing, and I think that in the United States, if we had that a little bit more, a lot of cases would be solved a lot faster, yeah, especially time, missing persons yeah, cases. Because half the time, you're only getting recorded um, uh, at, like, airports or gas stations or if you're visiting a store that's, right. at, like, a big store. You know what I mean? It's not, yeah. like, uh, you know, down a street somewhere, so. I know. Yeah. While some investigators were viewing the hours of CCTV footage, others were searching the Baldwin household for forensic evidence. The main thing that they wanted to find out was who was the girl with red hair. However, they did not find any dyed red hair in the house. DCI Ronane wanted to look into every aspect of Jenna's life. She was a beautiful teenage girl, so he knew that there had to be boys in her life. He found out that Jenna had recently broken up with her older boyfriend. His name is Chris Jones. And according to Desiree, the two had a good relationship and she was happy to have him in Jenna's life. She said that he seemed to be a good influence. Mike, however, was not happy about this relationship. He could not get past the age difference. He said that Jenna, being 13 when this relationship started, was too young for the then 17-year-old Chris. That is a crazy age difference. That's a lot. A 17-year-old has no business being with a 13-year-old. Absolutely not. Mike forbade him from even entering their home. The couple had dated for two years and had just broken up that past spring. Everyone said that Chris was desperate to get back together with Jenna, but was content with just being friends with her for the time being. All of Jenna's friends said that the two were on good terms and that Chris thought that after time the two of them would get back together. Her friends seemed to agree that that would happen as well. Jenna was just very unhappy with life in general And at that point, she was taking it out on Chris, who seemed to really love her and she him. Whether or not the couple was on good terms or not, it seemed that Chris was the only person in Jenna's life to have motive for violence against her. So the investigators searched him and his house for evidence. In his room, police found two drawings, one done on a piece of paper and the other on the inside of his door in his room. 
the drawings were that of coffins. And the coffin said on it, R.I.P. Jenna. They also found several pieces of clothing in his laundry that had bloodstains on them. They were taken in for testing, and Chris was arrested. We are going to take another break from this show to talk about our second sponsor, Casper Mattresses. Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Did you know that you spend one-third of your life sleeping? So you should be comfortable when you do so. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. Casper offers two other mattresses, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. The Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. Casper also offers a wide array of other products, like pillows and sheets, to ensure an overall better sleep experience, and all of them are designed, developed, and assembled in the United States. Casper also has affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and sell directly to you. Casper is delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-it-sized box, with free shipping and returns in the United States and Canada. You can also be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night free risk sleep on it trial. Casper Mattresses is offering true crime couple listeners an amazing deal. Get $50 toward your select mattresses by visiting casper.com backslash TCC and using promo code TCC at checkout. Terms and conditions may apply. Again, that is $50 toward select mattresses by visiting casper.com backslash TCC and using promo code TCC at checkout. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, back to our show. Chris refused to talk to police the entire time he was in custody. However, one investigator is going to bring up the fact that when he went through Jenna's things, he found the same thing. Many drawings of coffins with her name on it and Chris's name. And he had all the same things in his room as well. Jenna's mother did confirm that this was something they did, and the couple seemed to have a morbid curiosity with the afterlife. Let's also not forget that 2002 was when the whole new punk rock emo scene scene was coming out, and it was, like, cool to be, like, death. Yeah, like, drawn coffins. Ooh, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say that I was immune to this. I was very deep into the emo scene when I was... Yeah, you did. (laughs) Yeah, I did. It was a weird time in my life. I'm moving past it, but it looks like Jenna was there with me. Sideways leather uh, studded belt. It it was white, and it was really nice, John. Jesus. But that's what it is. I mean, it's just them being teenagers. I don't think that it's anything uh, that shows that he wanted to kill her. And this paired with the fact that the blood analysis came back to reveal that the blood found on Chris's clothing was his own and not Jenna. Now, it's vaguely alluded to, but I believe that the stains were a result of self-harm on the part of Chris. They kind of, well, they mentioned it, but they didn't say that out loud. They said self-injury. Okay. But I think that it wasn't just uh, a self-injury that 
you know, like you were working on something and when you cut yourself on a nail. Right, he did it to himself. Yeah, I think it was self-harm. Probably injury. due to... The breakup. The breakup, And yeah. being very... De- they did say that he was very depressed about the breakup. Poor so, guy. Yeah. And things are just going to get worse now because he's arrested for the disappearance of Jenna. But investigators know that it's not him. So they do release him. And they're back now at square one. At this point, all of the phone records of the Baldwins had come in from their service providers. Investigators were particularly interested in where Jenna's phone call to Mike on the 9th had originated from. But when they look at that day on Mike's records, they see that Mike received no incoming calls that day at all. From her number? From any number. Hmm. Mike had lied to them. DCI Ronane had a bad feeling about this. He knew that there were always these anonymous calls that would come into the tip line center at specific times. No one would talk and the calls were untraceable. He looked into where Mike was supposed to be when the calls were made. Around the time of the calls, Mike would be alone as Desiree was at work. The calls that were being placed very well could have been Mike. However, this level of depravity was something far beyond what investigators had seen in their sleepy town. DCI Ronane called in a clinical forensic investigator to find out just why Mike would be the one making these calls. The clinical forensic investigator is going to look over the details of the case and then confer with other investigators. She let them know that Mike could be making the calls for a variety of different reasons. He could be making them to keep the investigation alive. He may have noticed that his wife responded positively to the fact that calls were still coming in and he was trying to make her happy. Or maybe he was placing the calls out of guilt. Guilt because he didn't have a good relationship with Jenna or maybe guilt because he did something wrong. She stated that the only way they would be able to passively find out why he was doing this was to create a scenario and see how he responds to it. So DCI Ronane was to tell the Baldwins that if Jenna did not contact them or the calls of sighting stopped, they would have to turn this into a murder investigation, which would become a larger, more intense investigation involving more than just police force of Gwen. He added that if Jenna did contact them and she was alive, they would have to scale back the investigation because she was okay just a runaway. Investigators knew that seeing how Mike responded to this news would help them determine why he was the one possibly making these calls. Which is smart. It is smart, but I think there becomes a an ethical issue here as to how much you're going to allow this, this farce or this facade to, to continue. We're going to get into that a little bit more, but I think that it is smart, it's a good idea, but how far it goes calls ethics into question. Okay. The police put surveillance on Mike at this point. If he contacted police, the tip line, Desiree, or anyone else for that matter, they wanted to make sure that they had a record of it. A few days after DCI Ronane gave the family the possible scenarios the investigation could take, Mike was seen going into a drugstore to buy a burner mobile phone. He unwrapped the phone in a phone box and discarded the box in a car park, which is a parking lot. (laughs) 
Investigators retrieved the package and were able to determine the phone number of the phone as well as the fact that he purchased the phone under a false name. For safe measure, they took the box in as evidence and they fingerprinted the package, which were covered with Mike's fingerprints. Over the next few days, Mike makes several phone calls to Desiree, pretending, police assumed, to be Jenna Baldwin. The phone calls range from silence to whispering or purring noises, which is so creepy and horrifically scary. Yeah, like, why are you purring? I, why are you, you did something wrong here. Something but that very, also shows very his, wrong. Like, his, his mental state at this point. Yeah. I mean, he's like, I mean, like, what the fuck? It. The lengths that he's willing to go. Yes. His desperation in covering up something here. Very strange. No words were ever spoken. And after these calls, Desiree began to receive text messages from the same number. To deflect attention, Mike made sure that he was present when all the texts were sent. Investigators guessed that he had the phone hidden somewhere in the house. And when he got the chance, he would sneak away, turn on the phone, send the texts, turn the phone off, and go downstairs. Mike also made sure that a week later, he was present and appeared saddened for the second press appeal that the Baldwins made. So he's trying really hard. Yeah, he's trying really hard to kind of keep up appearances, but also make it seem like Jenna is trying to contact them. Right. The text messages that Desiree was receiving said that Jenna was okay and that her mother shouldn't be worried. Desiree desperately wanted to see and speak with her daughter. However, her daughter responded that she was with someone who would allow her to send text messages, but she was being held against her will, and she could not see or call her mother. But she was okay and would soon be out of the situation. Which now I think we're call it, like we're getting into that kind of ethical gray zone of this woman is now being tormented. Right. Someone's claiming to be to her be daughter. To be her daughter. And, and the police know for a fact that it's Mike. So why I, are they allowing this to happen? And allowing... Well, I don't want to get into... I don't want to get into too much. Okay. Let's keep going. <laughs> okay. Desiree stated that she was immediately suspicious of the messages that she was receiving. Because there was a lot of spelling mistakes and grammatical errors. She said that Jenna doesn't text this way. But she wanted to believe her daughter was okay so badly that she looked past all of these things. She was rattled when the police spoke to her. She didn't want her daughter to be dead. And of course, Desiree told investigators that she was receiving messages from someone who was claiming to be Jenna. They told her that this was great news, but the investigation would continue until it was confirmed that it was Jenna. And Desiree's going to kind of try to take things into her own hands at this point. She desperately wants to believe this is Jenna, but she's doubting it because of the spelling mistakes. So to get answers for herself, Desiree asked Jenna a question that only she would know the answer to. That's pretty smart. Absolutely. So after Desiree's father passed away, his house was left to her brother, but it needed a lot of fixing up. Jenna had helped her uncle paint radiators while he was repainting the house. So she sent this text message. What did you paint with your uncle in Granch's house? And Granch is like grandpa. Okay. 
Mike, knowing that they always visited Desiree's father during the holiday, responded hours later by saying, a Christmas painting. Desiree was heartbroken. She knew this wasn't the right answer. She told Mike what had happened, giving him the correct answer. Later that night, a text message came in saying sorry she had gotten confused about what time she was talking about, but she remembers she had also painted radiators with him. And Desiree was elated. She believed now that her daughter was not dead for sure. Oh my god. Yeah. You know what's crazy though? I'm just going to say one thing about the police. I know you didn't want to get into it, and I, I, I'm i not going to do it yet. But, no, um, go, just but, go, go for it. Go crazy. Okay. I just think that, like, yes, they're not right for how they're handling it, I guess. But you have to understand, one, they still need the cooperation from the mother. And if they tell her that, listen, lady, your kid's probably dead and your husband has something to do with it. It, it will just totally destroy everything and make him run. Uh, the possibility of him running. Or, 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 you know, something along those lines. So the, their issue is that they knew at the, like, at the moment that they were following him that he was guilty of something. They just wanted to collect the They evidence. just wanted as much evidence as possible to lock the fucker up. And I completely understand that. And I get it. And anything that I've read about this case and anything that I've watched about this case, nobody seems to call this into question with the police. And they think that they were right right in their investigation and i agree that they did collect what they needed to collect this way of doing things but i also don't agree with the fact that they not only are allowing this mother who has a missing child to to go through the torment of believing now this child is not only alive but communicating with them that's messed up i know what you mean and on top of that now she's living with two other young kids in the house with this man who's guilty of doing something really bad to her other daughter. So, yes, he's under surveillance, but they're not there in the house. And what if something else happens? I get what you're saying. But the way that... And and this is just a very generalized, like, opinion that I have. is, Is that the way that they operate their task force... Is very, different. is very different than how we do it here in the States. I feel like with 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 them, they're not putting the emotion into it. Like there's no emotional connection. Yeah. As it is maybe for the cops and the investigators here. They're all about getting these people and booking them. And the only way to do that is to have mounds and mounds of evidence right, to make sure that he cannot wiggle out. And that's what they do there. It's a little bit different than what we do here. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. So as this is all transpiring, police have Mike under heavy surveillance. They know that he is sending these text messages because he is seen doing so in his car the same time the messages are received. However, they do not want to tell Desiree yet. They believe that eventually Mike will return to where Jenna is or where her body is. They knew Mike was involved at this point. They just didn't know what he did or what happened. Investigators want to use one last ploy to see if Mike will show them what he did. With their focus now completely on Mike, investigators chose to re-interview everyone that they had spoken to before. Before, they had just said things like, was Jenna unhappy at home? They didn't specifically ask questions about Mike. Upon talking to her friends again, they learned that Jenna hated Mike. 
The relationship between the two was violent and aggressive. Whenever they were at Jenna's house, the two would get into arguments, screaming in each other's faces. Mike would often scream at them to get out as well. When Jenna would go back in to get her things, she would come back out saying things like, he pushed me or he grabbed me, but he would never do those things when you guys are there. Police looking back at the case, which I find interesting because now that means that maybe this is why Jenna was always with her friends because she didn't want to be alone because maybe that's when Mike acted out acted out against yeah. her. But police looking back at the case really realized that there was something kind of wrong with that episode on September 4th. They think it was a little strange. So if you remember, that was when Desiree pulled up to the house on her lunch break and she saw Jenna banging on the door in, to get into the house. They wanted to know if this happened before or after this date. Investigators were now going to interview the neighbors asking those specific questions. One neighbor said she remembered a similar incident. She could not be sure when, but it was weeks prior. The neighbor said she saw Jenna banging on the front door. She went to look out the window because she was making such loud noises, pounding on the door and screaming up at the house. When she went to the window, she remembered that she heard Jenna say, Don't laugh at me, Mike. You'll be the one leaving when my mom finds out. Shortly after she yelled that, she saw Jenna get dragged into the house by Mike and heard continued screaming coming from within the house. With this new information, the police learned that Jenna potentially had a secret. A motive beyond that of a typical feuding parent and teenager emerged and the pieces of the puzzle were coming together. DCI Ronane finally obtained access to financial records of Mike Baldwin. He found a discrepancy in the story the man was telling about the day after Jenna's friends last saw her. Mike stated that he had worked the night shift the evening of September 5th. When he returned home, he took the kids to school in the morning of the 6th. He said then that he immediately went home and went to bed around 9 a.m. However, there were two transactions found on Mike's checking account during the time. Um, it stated the time that he had stated he was home. On, at 8.58 a.m., he attempted to withdraw cash from the ATM but had insufficient funds. He then went to a shop in Pontypool where he bought a shovel at 9.13 a.m. A shovel, huh? A shovel. Hmm. With this evidence, police now knew that they were no longer looking for a missing teenage girl, but a body. They employed help in the search. All bodies of water in the area were searched by divers, and sniffer dogs were used to track her scent. They call them sniffer dogs. I love that. How cute is that? So cool. I know. Um, the scent of either her or of a decomposing body. Forensic investigators also took a second look through the house. However, nothing was found in any of these searches. During these searches, Mike was extremely defensive and often left the room when investigators came to ask Desiree more questions about the text messages she was receiving. The whole time, however, he kept sending the text messages. He truly still believed that if the investigators thought that Jenna was still alive, the investigation would stop. Desiree still having hung on to the desperate hope that it was Jenna on the other side of the text message she was receiving continued communication. Investigators were keeping the farce alive in hopes that Mike, who was under constant surveillance, would eventually lead them back to the body. But after weeks of surveillance, it was clear that Mike was not going to do so. 
the investigators wanted to use Desiree in another ploy. She recalls that she was making gravy that night for dinner when she got a phone call from the police. They had asked her to text the phone and ask for something personal to be sent back to her. Desiree said she remembers thinking that she didn't want to do that because really she knew the person wasn't Jenna and getting a random piece of jewelry would not help her at all, but it would prove once and for all that most likely her daughter was dead. The investigators were doing this in hopes that Mike would return to the body and maybe try and take a piece of jewelry from the body. Through their surveillance, they discovered their plan did not work. They saw Mike put an envelope in the post, but never did he return to Jenna's body. When Desiree received a letter to the house, she called investigators over. Desiree, Mike, and DCI Ronane stood in the kitchen, letter in hand. When they opened the letter, one of Desiree's old engagement rings came out. Mike said that he saw Desiree wear it a few times, but Desiree stood firm that she never did. So now you have Mike falling further down in his spiral of lies, and Desiree is now confused and scared. How did someone, this person who's messaging her, get her engagement ring? And this is another ethical gray area. Now, not only is this woman desperate enough to believe that the person that she's texting is her daughter, giving her false hope, they're keeping her under the roof of a murderer. And now this woman is scared out of her mind that someone broke into her house and stole her engagement ring. I think that, like, it goes back to what I said before, which is... I think that they just needed to frame him and gather information. And I mean, I understand what you're saying. Okay, he was under surveillance, but he wasn't under surveillance within the home. But you have to understand, he is still under surveillance. And if he was to I do know. anything, and I, it, and I, he would, it would be stopped instantly. I mean, he's being monitored like pretty much the whole day, every day. Yeah, I guess. I just, I mean, I guess also from the side of Desiree, it is kind of willful ignorance to believe that Mike's not involved at this point because not only did that message come through once you told him that it was the radiators, and I I know. It's more just like, you know, she's blind to it because she doesn't want to believe her daughter's dead. But like anybody else, right. But anybody else would be able to piece that together. It's just because she's in a state of She's in a state of despair, exactly. And that's the issue. Yeah. When investigators got a hold of the letter, they determined that Mike's prints were all over the envelope. And the stamp was licked by Desiree and Mike's daughter. Isn't that so sad? The younger daughter. He made her lick the stamp so his DNA evidence wasn't on it. But he didn't realize his fingerprints were all over it. See, he's sick. That How sad is that? He's really fucked up. Yeah. With this, police believe they finally had enough evidence to arrest Mike Baldwin. And they did so. Uh, on your birthday, October 29th. Wow, check that out. But 2002. All right. Mike maintained his innocence during his arrest. However, he has no idea that police had been following him at this point for over a month. When DCI Ronin told Desiree that Mike was under arrest for the murder of her daughter, she did not believe that he was guilty. In her mind, this was her loving husband, who had taken her and Jenna in when they needed someone most. And also investigators had made this mistake before. They had arrested Chris Jones, Jenna's ex-boyfriend, even though she knew he would have never hurt her daughter. Whether it was hurt, denial, or self-preservation, Desiree wanted to believe desperately that this wasn't happening. How could Mike do this? Or go to the lengths that he did to cover it up? 
And how could police not have told her and played with the desperate mother's emotions like that? Investigators laid out all of the evidence they had for Desiree. She told reporters later that this is when I knew she was dead. That's so sad. It is sad. Mike was officially charged with the murder of his stepdaughter, Jenna Baldwin, on November 2, 2002. He pled innocent, believing that he could never be found guilty of a crime without a body. Once Mike was in prison, he contacted Desiree. He wanted to see her and his two children. Desiree was sure to let him know that he would never see her ever again, but if he wanted to see his children, he would have to reveal where Jenna's body was. That was when Mike told Desiree and the Gwent police where Jenna's body was located. And when investigators failed to find the burial site on their own, they took Mike to the location where he pointed out exactly where he had buried Jenna's body. Mike Baldwin was tried by a jury of his peers in the Cardiff Crown Court. The trial, which began in July of 2003, lasted a grueling seven weeks for Desiree, as her husband stood accused of murdering her daughter. According to Mike's defense, he stated that on September 10th, Jenna came home to the house while Desiree was at work. The two got into a heated argument. She kept pushing and hitting him, and he was trying to walk away. While he was walking up the stairs, Jenna punched him in the back of the neck. He turned around to swing at her, but when he did and connected with her, she fell down the stairs and died instantly. He then panicked and decided that he was going to bury the body. Prosecution wanted to disprove this claim by building up for the jury the violent relationship that the two had trying to determine if there was a secret that Jenna was keeping and the lack of remorse and calculated cover-up that Baldwin went through. They also wanted to disprove his timeline. If he bought the shovel on the 6th and Jenna was last seen on the 5th, it wasn't believable at all that this event took place on the 10th. It's more likely that this event took place between the 5th and the 6th. The trial with all of the witnesses got very complicated the trial, with all the witnesses, got complicated very quickly. A co-worker who had shared a cell phone with Mike Baldwin claimed that Mike had told him once that he was having a sexual relationship with Jenna. When asked about this during his cross-examination, Mike stated the following, You're joking, aren't you? We couldn't stand each other. She couldn't stand me. I couldn't stand her. She didn't like doing what she was told. She wouldn't do anything. That language right there makes me believe that something happened. Not necessarily that, that this was consensual or that anything happened, but it makes me believe that Mike made sexual advances towards Jenna. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because as soon as we started getting into the story, I really felt like that was the case. That that was the, the whole time. Like yeah. that was like the whole time. But... Yeah, that's that's honestly if there was some type of sexual abuse that was taking place, it could be taking place. Uh, there's like a there's a lot of things that could equate to there being sexual abuse in the house. Um, Jenna turning 13. That's when this behavior starts. So that's evidence like when you act out, it could be a result of abuse taking place. Or it could be that if Mike had been abusing Jenna when she was a younger girl and then she turned 13 and he stopped and maybe she was acting out in, in fear that he would 
begin with his daughter. Um, But the language of Mike, I think, is the most telling of it. Because as a father, because he did know Jenna since she was two years old, and now she's 15, so he's known her for 13 years. If someone is accusing you of having a sexual relationship with your stepdaughter, whom you've known her whole life, instead of denying it, you, you talk about her in a way that she is your equal. And, and you say things like, she didn't like doing what she was told, or she wouldn't do anything. That is hmm. a creepy statement to make as a stepfather. Yeah. So you're saying that you would have wanted her to do what you were trying to tell her to do. And she wouldn't do it. And she wouldn't right. do yeah, it. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean... So maybe yeah. that is what she was alluding to with the neighbor... My when my mom finds out what you try like what you did like what you're trying to do, like you're trying to make sexual advances at me. Right, right, right. And that would that would that would give her a reason to, uh, you know, run away and not come home for days. Um, that would explain wanting to be with an older guy, I guess. Yeah. Um, that would explain you know, and like a lot of people will also say, well, or her when wanting did they to do live this? with the boyfriend? Right, exactly. Well, when did they? When could these things have happened? Well. She was not in school a lot, and the mother worked. And, and he, he worked had, nights. He worked nights, so he was home. He was home with her alone. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. So, I mean, the yeah. opportunity, the timing was, was right. Home. There was opportunities for that to happen. And I her think, behavior kind of reflects that. Also, I mean, later evidence given by Chris Jones, who is Jenna's ex-boyfriend, she states that um, when they would have blow-up fights and Jenna would come live with him, that there was one incident in which Mike and Desiree came to get Jenna back and Mike was shouting, threatening to break his leg and he grabbed Jenna by the neck and threw her back into the car. We could, You could also interpret this, you could also interpret this as if you're going to do the stretch of a jealousy in the fact that she had a boyfriend. She has a boyfriend now. Yes, and she can no, he can no longer have her. Have her and control her. Or desire her. her. It's, it, it might yes. be a control it's thing. A, it might well, be a sexual thing. I think yeah. it's also a sexual thing, too, in the fact that she's very mature for her age. And she obviously is, if she's spending the night at this boy's house, probably sexually active. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting um, thing that comes out in the trial when in relation to either sexual abuse or sexual advances or even emotional abuse that was taking place in a sexual manner, coercive control that may have been going on. It, it kind of makes you wonder why Jenna was acting out the way she did because the behavior change does seem pretty extreme from the way she was described prior to 13 years old. It's very interesting. No, it is. It really is. However, the most damning evidence that's going to come is going to be the testimony of the crime scene investigator and the forensic pathologist. It was stated here that when crime scene investigators tried to go back to the scene and reenact the scenario that Mike claims happened, they couldn't recreate it. No matter what they did, nothing would result in the immediate death of a person that was Jenna's height and weight. The forensic pathologist also stated that it could not have happened the way Mike said it did. After two post-mortems, the injuries were not consistent with his story. Normally, if you fall down the stairs and you die immediately, it's either because of a broken neck or a broken back. That would make your death instantaneous. 
Jenna had neither of those injuries. If your death, if you do die as a result of a fall down the stairs, but your death is not instantaneous, you would have swelling of the brain due to trauma over an amount of time. So they're thinking, okay, maybe did she fall and maybe he buried her alive, but that couldn't even happen because there was no swelling of her brain. So there's no way that the fall down the stairs is what killed her. However, her body did show signs of strangulation. And Mike was a brown belt in judo. And he would know five strangulation moves that would result in death in seconds. It's possible that maybe during a sexual advance, she said, no, get out of here. Maybe she did hit him or punch him or something. And he got triggered and put her in some sort of lock or choke or something and killed her. Yeah, or she was, they were just fighting. They were just fighting and she said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Maybe I'm going to tell my mom what you tried to do or I'm going to get you kicked out of the house or just anything. Anything. Even even if it has nothing to do with anything sexual, it could have just been another knockout, drag down fight like they always have. Yep, and then that's what happens, fortunately. And he strangled her, not knowing his own strength because he is a big guy. It's, I mean, it's very possible. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's that hard when he's that big and she's so tiny. Correct. You know? When put on the stand, DCI Ronane stated that Mike was a calculating, deceitful liar, determined to try and cover up his tracks and put his wife and his family through the most horrendous experience that can ever be inflicted on anyone. Desiree gave a tearful testimony and stated that Mike clearly had no remorse for murdering her most precious and beautiful daughter. In addition to this, under cross-examination, Mike admitted to the jury that he made no attempt to revive Jenna, nor did he check if she was still alive before he buried her. Um, Luckily, from the post-mortem, we do know that there was no dirt in her lungs, so she was unfortunately dead when he buried her, but fortunately, at the same time, because... It would just add to it the... It would add to the torture of the poor girl. Right. The, the jury deliberated for six hours over two days. They found him guilty of the murder of Jenna Baldwin. The judge, who would later sentence him to life with the possibility of parole, had this to say to Baldwin. Only you know the precise circumstances of Jenna's death, and only time will tell if you are prepared to share your secret and so relieve your wife to whom you confessed your love. You are an arrogant man interested in getting your own way. You are short-tempered and something of a bully. It is likely there was some row between you and Jenna, during which Jenna may have been abusive to you, but I'm satisfied that you would have been just as abusive to her. The likelihood is that you lost your temper and strangled her. After that, you did not panic but made a clear and calculated attempt to cover up, motivated entirely by self-interest. You have shown nothing but self-pity and not a trace of remorse for the death of a young and popular girl. Jenna would have grown out of her rebellious phase, and she would have lived a life full of promise. Desiree stated that Jenna's death was not in vain, because now her siblings did not have to grow up with a monster for her father. And on October of this year, Jenna's mother made a desperate plea to the public. In 2003, she was told that after Mike completed his life sentence, he would be relocated far away from her and her family. However, she had just received news that in 2017, 
just three years away from Mike gaining parole, he would be considered for the open prison program. In this program, he would serve his final few years of incarceration in a halfway house of sorts, where he would be reintegrated into the community, community very close to her. She said this news had devastated her. because a life sentence. It's 20 to 25 years. A life sentence should mean life, she said. If we were in America, in some states, he would have received the death penalty. Simple as that. He has served just over a quarter of a life sentence, and yet he may be on free license soon. I don't think he has suffered much at all. He is a monster who took everything from me. I love Jenna more than anything. She was bright and beautiful, and she would have been... And she would have been 26 now and probably had a family. It is beyond all reason that he be released at all, let alone around here. I'm extremely angry about it. I was readying myself for this in three years' time, not now. It is too soon, and it's not justice. But a decision has not yet been reached. It's sad. It's so sad. It's very sad. And maybe the system to her might have failed her, but... Well, because now he's up for parole yes. and she could possibly get it. Yes. I think that I think that she's right by saying that if it did happen in the States, he would be put to the death penalty. Yeah, it's very de- possible. Depending on what state he's it's in. It's very yeah. possible. Um, I Because it's, I mean, even if, even if it was a manslaughter charge, I mean, it, you don't know because he, it might have been the same thing. It could have been. Because if it's not premeditated, it's a whole different kind of deal. But I, I, I just, I'm sad for her. I'm sad for her. I'm sad for her family. Um, I just think that, like, I, even though I know this sounds weird, look, look, I think he should still be in prison. Like, he, you know, like I hope he, I hope he could stay there forever. But I mean, even if he doesn't and he's released, he did serve crime uh, time. I'm sorry, he did serve time. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully, see what the next step should be ta- uh, that should be taken is that he's when he's released and he's rehabilitated. That he is not allowed to be anywhere near his children or his ex-wife, or right. You know I, I think mean? they should honor what they told her in two thousand. Yes, absolutely. They should stick to that. Correct. Because there's I no reason why um, her children and her have to get up and leave just because they might be afraid of him coming back. And it's just it's they, no one should be living in fear like that. But I feel very. My heart bleeds for the family. I know. It's so sad. I really do feel so bad for them. And just the fact that he so calculated in what he did for for so long, that it shows the kind of mindset that he has. Yes. And hopefully he has been rehabilitated. But if either way, I think he should be far away from the family. Absolutely. And he should have to live with what he did for the rest of his life, even though it won't be inside, you know, the walls of a prison. He's trapped within the confines of his mind. And he'll be stuck with what he did for the rest of his life. You're right. So you got to deal with that bullshit. Yep. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 22. And just another reminder, like we do at the end of every show, if you would like to donate to our Patreon page, you could do that at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We're sorry if you heard any music during this episode. Our neighbors were kind of blasting it. And that's where our Patreon donations are going to go to try and get us some maybe time in a studio or better soundproofing <laughs> absolutely um you know it was kind of weird doing the show today with uh, the likes of drake and rick ross yes um if you're into nice. that rap scene but uh yeah that's what we were uh you know accompanied know. by today i hope it didn't ruin the mood guys i'm sorry all right thank you so much bye guys bye